Okay, in this podcast, we're going to talk about glucose regulation. So this is defined as the process of maintaining optimal blood glucose levels. So when we think about normal blood glucose levels, um, generally we want to stay in a um, a range of 70 to 99 if the patient's fasting, or between 70 to 140 if they um, have eaten something. We call that postprandial. So if we were going to check a patient's blood sugar, we have to consider whether they've fasted or if they've had something to eat. So if they've fasted, we're looking for it to be less than 100. If they've had something to eat, then we would expect that it might go up to about 140 range uh, within two hours of eating. So if a patient starts to drop below 70, um, some resources even say below 60, then we would call that hypoglycemia. So their blood sugar is getting too low, and we might just start to see effects of that um, in the patient. Or the opposite, hyperglycemia. So if their fasting is above 100, or if their postprandial, meaning after eating, is above 140, then we generally say that they're hyperglycemic. Another good blood test that we can use um, to help monitor um, and even detect diabetes is the hemoglobin A1C. Another name for it is glycosylated hemoglobin. So this is a blood test that we'll take from the patient's arm, and the normal hemoglobin A1C is less than 5.7. Now, if someone is um, in the pre-diabetic range, we usually see that this is 5.7 to 6.4. And then for someone to be diagnosed with diabetes, that hemoglobin A1C goes above 6.5. So once someone's diagnosed with diabetes or even pre-diabetes, then they're going to be put on some type of regimen to help intervene and and get these um, numbers down. So for example, for a patient who's diabetic, we want it to see, we want to see that number go below 6.5. You know, are the medications, exercises, diet changes, whatever they're doing, is it working? And we're going to monitor that by checking that hemoglobin A1C. This is a really good measurement, not that your typical finger stick isn't a good measurement, but the hemoglobin A1C shows the average blood sugar level over the past couple of months. So that's why we use it to help monitor um, how our interventions are working. So let's kind of talk about what goes on inside of the body. We'll talk about some different hormones that help regulate um, blood sugar and what is happening when these aren't working correctly. So after someone consumes food, insulin is released to facilitate the movement of glucose into the cells. So that is our primary job of insulin is to move glucose into the cells so it can be utilized. Insulin also suppresses glucagon, which is a counter-regulatory hormone. Um, And it also facilitates glycogen storage, which glycogen is the storage form of glucose. So glucagon, this is a counter-regulatory hormone. This suppresses insulin, and it stimulates hepatic glucose production when there's a deficiency um, of glucose in the body. So let's say you've gone for a long time without eating during the day. Um, Your body will release glucagon to help suppress insulin because it doesn't want glucose to go in the cells because your, your blood sugar level's low. 
um, and you're starting to feel a little funny from that. Um, the other thing that glucagon can do is it can start to stimulate um, glycogen to break down so that that glucose can be utilized. Because remember I said glycogen is the storage form of glucose. So we have different counter-regulatory hormones um, that help suppress insulin. Um, and you know, I gave this example of glucagon, but some others that we'll talk about are things like cortisol. You think about cortisol is released when your body is stressed. And usually when your body is stressed, your glucose levels are going up because your body is trying to be ready to, to utilize that and have that glucose available. So cortisol is actually suppressing the action of insulin, which is why that glucose level goes up. So in patients who are diabetic, managing stress is key because we don't want those counter-regulatory hormones uh, to make their blood sugar level go up too high. Let's talk about people who are at risk for diabetes and glucose uh, regulation issues. They're not just diabetes. But as far as um, different populations, uh, we have um, it's higher risk of glucose regulation issues in American Indians, Alaskan Natives, African Americans, Hispanic Latino population, Asian Americans. Um, there's also a genetic factor to this, um, a sedentary lifestyle, so not being very active, poor diet, you know, with, um, not eating healthy foods, high fats, consuming a lot of carbs. Other chronic health conditions could also lead to glucose regulation issues. And there are medications, and I'll name some examples of meds. Um, I don't think it's really important that you understand how, the, the details of how they affect um, glucose per se, but just know that there are certain medications that may affect glucose regulation. For example, steroids. Now that one is you know a pretty common one, and we see that utilized with a lot of patients. Um, especially patients with diabetes who might have other chronic health conditions. In that one, I think it is important to understand that that will elevate your blood glucose level um, since we do see that utilized a lot. ACE inhibitors, um, estrogen, beta blockers, oral hypoglycemic agents, potassium-depleting diuretics, bronchodilators, antipsychotics, antibiotics, those are all drugs that could affect glucose regulation. And a lot of those are actually increasing your blood glucose level. Other things to think about as far as age groups that might be at risk for glucose regulation issues. Um, during pregnancy, um, the hormones actually um, can cause insulin resistance. So during um, about week 24 to 28, we generally see, it's kind of that late second trimester, we see where the hormones are ramping up in pregnancy, and that is when women are at highest risk of developing gestational diabetes. And that is the time frame when they'll go in and they'll have what's called an oral glucose tolerance test to help detect whether they have diabetes, gestational diabetes or not. Now, women who have diabetes from the get-go and then get pregnant, um, they're going to be monitoring their blood sugar levels a lot earlier um, than, than waiting till that 24 to 28 week mark. 
Um, similar, similarly, infants um, who are born large for gestational age or even small for gestational age have risks of um, blood sugar issues, and theirs is actually hypoglycemia. And infants who are born large for gestational age generally are born to moms who have gestational diabetes. And what happens here is when the baby's in utero, um, they get so used to mom having an excess of glucose and their body is producing more insulin because of that. So then once baby's born, they're, you know, they're not in utero anymore. They have this excess of insulin ready to go because they're so used to mom having excess sugars, glucose running through the blood. So when they're born and they have that excess insulin, we tend to see that they might have hypoglycemic event because they're like, where'd all the sugar go? And they're, and they're not utilizing that because they have all that insulin just kind of sitting there. And then your um, small for gestational age infants, they require increased energy needs and they have insufficient glycogen stores and this puts them at risk for hypoglycemia. And then older adults, um, there's a higher risk of hyperglycemia as we age. Um, this is related to an increase in visceral fat and a decrease in lean muscle mass where glucose is metabolized. Um, so we don't have a way to metabolize and kind of use up that glucose so it starts to sit in the bloodstream and can, can elevate. And also as we age, insulin production reduces. So as we've seen, everything usually kind of goes downhill a little bit. Okay, so when you're assessing a patient who's at risk for um, a glucose regulation issue, um, some things that you want to think about, of course, we want to get a complete medical history, social history, family history, um, do a complete review of systems. There might be some associated medical conditions that could lead to glucose regulation issues. Uh, we'll actually see those here um, as we continue to talk about this. Um, we want to look for actual or potential problems with gluc glucose regulation. If we see central obesity, so obesity in that core area, um, those are huge indicators of having glucose regulation issues. Um, we also want to assess for clinical manifestations of impaired glucose regulation, um, any complications that could be associated with that. So, and we'll be doing some diagnostics like their blood sugar, you know, their finger stick blood sugar, their hemoglobin A1C. We can um, test lipid levels because having high lipids, hyper, hyperlipidemia could be increased risk factor for developing diabetes because that shows us that they have a poor diet. Um, and also looking at renal function. Um, we're going to see this correlation with diabetes and renal function. It has to do with the way that um, these high blood sugars affect the vessels and that will affect other organs in the body. And we could even do some inflammatory markers like the C-reactive protein. It's such a generic test. It's not really going to tell us a whole lot. Um, but if, you know, somebody has, you know, some inflammation going along, because this could be an autoimmune condition, you know, type 1 diabetes is autoimmune, we might see an elevated C-reactive protein because of that. Other things to think about. Um, let's go ahead and talk about the consequences of impaired glucose. Kind of started to touch on that a little bit. So when someone has elevated glucose levels, um, especially if it's maintained for a while, that'll start to reduce the elasticity of blood vessels. So we can see all sorts of problems result from that. 
So it's damaging the basement membrane of the blood vessels, and that's going to reduce blood flow to certain areas of the body. That's why you start to see things um, like neuropathy or damage to the nerves develop. Um, we could see things like kidney issues or poor blood flow to wounds. They might have problems with the healing of wounds because they have poor blood flow. So there's this damage to the blood vessels, and that can lead to damage to the nerves. Um, they can also be at risk for fluid and electrolyte issues, even acid-base imbalances, um, like the um, diabetic ketoacidosis is a, a risk factor with hyperglycemia. Um, there's also another complication known as hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, um, and this involves very severe hyperglycemia above 600, um, which can lead to severe dehydration mental status changes. So it's when, when the glucose levels are high, a lot of damage can be done. And the other thing we have to think about is we typically see patients who have diabetes also have other issues with like weight, diet. Um, a lot of them could be smokers, which also leads to vascular problems. And then with hypoglycemia, of course, you're, that means your body's not uh, able to utilize glucose. It's not going into the cells. That's the number one way that your brain can function is, is relying on that glucose. So patients start to get confused, they're out of it, that's a safety issue. So we really want to maintain this proper glucose. So how can we help maintain this? Of course, prevention and education are key. Um, we want to teach our patients about a balanced weight, or optimal weight, I'm sorry, and a balanced diet. Regular physical activity is important. You know, having them talk to their doctors about what safe activity or what activity would be safe for them. Early detection, early intervention will help reduce the progression of the disease. Having regular screenings once they're diagnosed or if they're at high risk, so we can start assessing that hemoglobin A1C and blood, blood glucose levels. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, treatment is going to be based on what those levels are. So monitoring that hemoglobin A1C. Um, you know, monitoring their blood glucose levels throughout the day that helps determine treatment. And really, we really want them to be able to self-manage this. Um, so a lot of education, helping them to cope with this since it's a lifelong illness, teaching them how to self-monitor, teaching them how to take meds, teaching them how to count carbs um, with, you know, within their diet, and also educating them on the importance of the side effects we may see, um, especially from taking the meds, like hypoglycemia, what that would look like. And then also they could be developing hyperglycemia, especially, you know, during times where they may be ill or sick. Um, and they could have high blood sugar levels or if they're stressed. And we want them to know what that look like looks like. Um, one of the things I've always heard is the saying that um, hot and dry sugar's high. So the patient's real flush, they're hot and they're dry. That usually means their sugar's high. Or cold and candy, or sorry, cold and clammy get the candy. Um, so they're cold, they're diaphoretic, they often can get confused or feel out of it. Then their blood sugar is usually low. So how can the nurse help minimize complications? Um, like I said, education is so important. Um, so if we can keep that blood sugar under control, we can help prevent damage to the body because it's the blood sugar getting out of control that leads to all those other complications. 
Um, patients with diabetes, they also need special um, foot and eye care because, again, of the risk of the poor blood flow to different areas in the body. Um, so we have to give them special instructions on that in addition to instructions on um, nutrition and proper diet. And then also um, monitoring their kidney function to try to detect any complications early. We can test for things like albumin in the urine. Um, when albumin is a protein and when it's in the urine, that, that tells us that the kidneys aren't functioning quite well. We could also do blood tests like your BUN and creatinine to monitor kidney function. And we want to keep these patients safe. Um, like I said, with the low blood sugar, they can have problems with confusion. Um, and even when their blood sugar shoots up real high, they can go into what we may call like a diabetic coma um, because they're all this sugar sitting in the blood, none of it's being utilized into the cells and things just aren't functioning correctly. Um, so we need to watch out for that. Um, thinking about times where their blood sugar may go up and how can we teach them to, to regulate that, like during times of stress, especially if they're sick and in the hospital. Um, sometimes patients who are used to never taking insulin, uh, maybe they're just on oral antidiabetics. Then they go in the hospital and they have surgery and they end up having to take insulin because their body's under stress and their sugar levels go up um, higher than what they're used to. So just need some education there. There's a ton of interrelated concepts that I think are, are highly important to understand the effects of glucose regulation on other um, things that, that affect the body. So thinking about adherence, family dynamics, culture, so a lot of behavioral changes um, influence glucose regulation, nutrition and mobility, and I mentioned that briefly already, patient education for sure, discuss that a little bit, um, the hormones involved. So we've mentioned some hormones like insulin as well as some counter-regulatory hormones, also pregnancy hormones and how they affect um, glucose regulation. Perfusion, we've talked about that and that's huge. And then how that can lead to sensory perception issues. We've also gone into the fact that the kidneys can um, be affected. And even if the kidneys are functioning properly, there's not much damage to them, we can still see um, you've got your three kind of key symptoms of diabetes or your classic signs and symptoms, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. So polyuria, meaning excessive urination. That's when those blood sugar levels elevate and it causes this osmotic pool. So the, the sugar levels in the blood are high and it makes the blood concentrated. So the body's like, eh, we need to balance things out again. So it's pulling fluid um, out of cells, trying to balance things out, and then that causes this diuresis. So we see polyuria, which then leads to polydipsia, which is the excessive thirst. They're getting dehydrated, so they get thirsty. And polyphagia, that actually means um, that they're hungry. So patients with diabetes, when that sugar level goes up, they get hungry because they're not utilizing the glucose. It's just sitting in their blood. And then, of course, something we've already discussed before in previous podcasts is immunity. Um, and the fact that um, this could be an autoimmune condition, like with type 1, um, or we could see just from prolonged hyperglycemia that could impair the immune system and its function because of the effect it has on perfusion. And then lastly, I discussed a little bit about tissue integrity. So there are tons and tons of things um, that are interrelated to the concept of glucose. This is a big concept, um, 
but it affects so many patients. Having a good understanding of it is going to be key because even if you don't have a patient who has diabetes, you could be taking care of someone who's at risk for diabetes and teaching them how they can prevent that with healthy diet uh, and exercise.